Bibles with you, and you can go ahead and start turning to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that over the last several weeks in our series, we've witnessed some difficult days for David's kingdom. It started in chapter 11 as the king himself fell into sin. It continued in chapter 12 as the Lord confronted David in his sin and spoke of the discipline that he would bring against the king. Chapter 13 was traumatic as sin devastated David's family with brothers committing shameful acts against one another and against their siblings. And then chapters 14 to 19 recounted in much detail the wicked and terrifying rebellion of Absalom. 11, 12, 13, 14, all the way to 19. For nine chapters, David's kingdom has faced difficult days. And much of that difficulty was due to David's own sin. So as we arrive in chapter 20, we reach the conclusion, so to speak, of those difficult days. There are, four, there are still four chapters remaining in the book of 2 Samuel after today. So the story of David's kingdom is not over. But within the, within the flow of 2 Samuel, within the narrative of 2 Samuel, this chapter does represent the end of that downward spiral that has been going on in David's kingdom. This is the ending point. So let's listen to how this conclusion plays out in 2 Samuel 20. I hope you follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Ju- but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. As he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. 
And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give, him, give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now together and ask God's grace on the reading and the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask this morning that You would be present among us by Your Holy Spirit's work to illuminate the words of the Scriptures. God, we know that this is how Your Spirit works among Your people. It's by illuminating the Word of God and causing our minds and our hearts to both understand and believe what it is that You have revealed in the Bible. And so, as much as we desire, Father, the Spirit's work among us today, we pray that that work would be seen through the illumination of the Scriptures, so that our hearts would believe, and that our lives would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So we ask, God, boldly that You would do that today, for our good and for Your glory. Lord, please help me to speak things that are faithful and accurate and true to the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We want to live today, Father. We want to live and thrive under the Gospel. So would you please help me to speak the things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures. Grant us, God, discernment. Oh, how we need discernment to know truth from error. Please work among us, God. Please work among us. Show yourself mighty through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes, the wise preacher makes this well-known statement. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. 
That's how Ecclesiastes chapter 1 begins. And of course, the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes is talking about the monotony of life in this fallen world, how things seem to go one day to the next and yet never really be any different. He's talking about life in this fallen world. But I couldn't help thinking of that statement from Ecclesiastes as I prepared for this morning. When it comes to 2 Samuel chapter 20, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been in David's kingdom, it seems, is what will be. If you've been with us over the last month or so, then I'm sure you noticed the repetitive nature of the chapter as we read. It's honestly impossible not to notice it. Here we have another rebellion by another wicked opponent. We have another murder from Joab. And we have another surprising moment of deliverance from an interesting source. I mean, it's all very engaging, chapter 20. It's all very engaging. You can't hear about someone wallowing in their own blood and not be at least a little bit interested. At least my nine and seven-year-old were interested this week when we talked about it in family devotions. Really? He's wallowing in his own blood? I mean, it's all very engaging. The details are interesting. But it's not exactly new, is it? We've seen this pattern before. I mean, like the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, and that seems to be the case in our passage. And so, we ask the question that I asked myself a lot of times this past week. Why is this chapter here in 2 Samuel? Why is chapter 20 here in 2 Samuel? We know that God is purposeful. And we know that every part of God's Word is for our good. We remind ourselves of that each week after we read the passage together. So, what is God's good purpose for this chapter? Why is this passage here in 2 Samuel? Well, there are two answers to that question. The first answer is what I mentioned at the outset. 2 Samuel 20 is the conclusion to the difficult days of David's kingdom. If you want just a bird's eye view of 2 Samuel, it only has three parts. Chapters 1 to 8, chapters 9 to 20, and then chapters 21 to 24. So chapter 20 is the conclusion to this middle section, which is really the dark, difficult days of David's kingdom. Chapter 21 starts a new section. But chapter 20 is a definite breaking point. That downward spiral that really took off in chapter 11 reaches its conclusion here. Now how do we know that? Are you just making that up, or how do we know that? Well, I'm not making it up. Look at verses 23 to 26 in your chapter. You see there that it's a list of David's royal officials. If you were to go back to chapter 8, you would find basically the same list with one difference. So that list of royal officials, that formal kind of court record history, is, is a literary road sign. It's the author's way of telling you, hey, I'm wrapping this part up. Right, so chapter 20 is here because it's a conclusion to this part of David's life. And that leads into the second and more important answer to our question. Why is 2 Samuel 20 here? Well, because it's a summation. Chapter 20 is a summation. It's a reminder of all of the truths that we should have learned in this hard section about the life of David. This chapter summarizes all of those together. The Holy Spirit has carefully and deliberately revealed some specific truths to us through the life of David during his hard days. And the Holy Spirit is also a master teacher, which means he understands the value and the need for repetition. 
You and I may like to pretend that we learned the Bible's truths after hearing them just once. But deep down inside, we know that that's not the case. If we're honest, we know it takes time for truth to sink down deep into our hearts. Even truth from the Bible. I wish that I learned it all the first time I heard it. That would make my life a lot easier. But that's not how we operate, is it? It takes time to learn what the Bible is teaching. And the Holy Spirit knows that as well. That's why in God's kindness, He gives us this summarizing chapter. If you haven't been paying attention since chapter 11, good news, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of what you missed here in chapter 20. He sums it up. These are the truths that we should take away from the difficult days of David's kingdom. It may sound familiar, but that doesn't make it any less important or any less life-giving. So that's how we're going to structure our time together this morning. I'd like to very simply just draw your attention to three reminders from 2 Samuel 20. Three reminders. Each one will likely sound familiar to you, but that repetition is part of the Lord's purpose. We are prone to forget, aren't we? We are prone to forget. So before we skip ahead, thinking that we've got this covered, let's pause here and listen again to God's Word. Let's humble ourselves with the willingness to be reminded of what God would have us here. So three reminders. The first one comes in verses 1 and 2. God's king continues to face opposition. God's king continues to face opposition. You'll remember that chapter 19 ended with the northern tribes of Israel at odds with the tribe of Judah. The northern tribes believed that they had been treated unjustly during David's return to power, but the tribe of Judah wouldn't budge. Their words were fiercer, and therefore Judah won the argument. Well, in the midst of that conflict, we meet another man in the mold of Absalom, a man named Sheba. Not Zeba, not Shimei, Sheba. Right? If, you, if I say Zeba or Shimei, I really mean Sheba, but I'm probably going to mess it up. A man named Sheba. Verses 1 and 2 give you a decent amount of detail about this gentleman. There are two things in particular that you need to know about Sheba. First of all, Sheba is a skilled troublemaker. He's a skilled troublemaker. Notice the short but powerful poem that Sheba composes in verse 1. We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. You see those words play on the division that's already at work in Israel. Sheba stirs the pot, so to speak. He aggravates the anger that the northern tribes already feel. He picks at those old wounds. And he does so skillfully. Make no mistake, friends. Sheba's words are meant to divide. He's clearly and purposefully calling the northern tribes to break away from David. Now think about that for just a moment. David is the Lord's chosen king. And the people have pledged themselves to David in covenant faithfulness. So this isn't just your normal everyday coup attempt. This is rebellion against God. David is the Lord's chosen king. The people have pledged themselves to David, but all of that goes out the window with Sheba. He knows the northern tribes are hurt and he sees an opportunity to gain power for himself. So that's what he does. Sheba purposefully stirs up division. He's a troublemaker and he's good at it. That's the first thing you should know about him. The second thing though is 
the worst aspect of Sheba's character. He is a man of wickedness. Sheba is a man of wickedness. Notice the first description of Sheba in verse 1. Even before we learn his name, we learn that he is a worthless man. Wicked, lawless, evil. That's the idea here. You may remember that Eli's sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were also called worthless men. Do you remember way back in 1 Samuel, Hopni and Phinehas? They stole from the people's sacrifices and they committed immorality in the tabernacle. Hopni and Phinehas were worthless, wicked men. And you may remember Nabal. Again, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, Nabal was a worthless man. Nabal was a fool who insulted David and refused to show hospitality. He was a worthless man. You see, those are Sheba's compatriots at this point. Those are his peers. Two immoral priests and a selfish fool. But here's the key point about Sheba, friends. Do you remember what happened to those earlier worthless men? What happened to Hopni and Phinehas? The Lord destroyed them. What happened to Nabal? The Lord struck him down for his foolishness. Now make the application to this worthless fellow, Sheba, who opposes the Lord's anointed. What's going to happen to Sheba? Like Hopni and Phinehas, the Lord will strike him down. Like Nabal, Sheba will fall by his own wickedness. You see, that's the point of the repetitive rebellion. God is reminding His people of two realities we will continue to face in this fallen world. One, there will always be opposition to God's chosen King. But two, that opposition will always end in the same place. Destruction. There will always be people who rise up against the Lord's anointed. And every time they rise, they will fall in destruction. That's what God is reminding us of here. Do you see it? Time after time, the wicked rise up in opposition to David, and time after time, the Lord delivers His King. Brothers and sisters, God means this to be an encouragement to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that David is not the Messiah. We've seen clear evidence of that over and over. David is not the Christ. But David's life does foreshadow the Messiah who is to come. As the Lord's chosen King, David is a type of the greater King, the Lord Jesus. And therefore, this is the point you need to hear, therefore, God's work in David's life does reveal the pattern of how God will work in the life of the Messiah. David's life reveals the pattern of how God will work in the life of the Messiah. Think for a moment of the relationship between a tree and its shadow. Okay, A big, tall, gorgeous tree and its shadow. The shadow doesn't give you the full picture of the tree. It doesn't give you all the details about the limbs and what color and the shape of the bark. But the shadow does give you the contour and the shape of what the tree looks like, doesn't it? Well, so it is here with David. David's life is the shadow that reveals the shape of the Messiah that is to come. Of course, like any shadow, the shape is not perfect or complete, but still it's enough to give you an idea. David's life is the shadow that reveals the shape of the Messiah to come. And that's where we find the encouragement, friends. As we watch God deliver King David time and time again, we're encouraged to know that truly nothing 
will stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we read all of the Bible as Christians. We read all of the Bible in order to see the Lord Jesus. So when the Lord Jesus tells us in the New Testament that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church, He's not telling us a new truth. He's applying an old truth to His new covenant people. You see it here with David. The wicked rise and God strikes them down. Nothing, not Absalom, not Sheba, not the gates of hell, nothing will stand against God's chosen King. That's why it's repetitive. So that we'll get it. Nothing will stand against God's King. So the next time it seems to you, brothers and sisters, that the world is rising up in opposition to Christ, remember Sheba. Remember Absalom. Remember Saul. Remember Goliath and all the Philistines. Those aren't simply neat little Bible stories. This is the shape of God's working in the world. This is the pattern of how He works for His anointed. This is why you absolutely must know and cherish redemptive history. Because in remembering God's work in the past, we find the courage to trust God to work in the present. Rebels will continue to rise. It's nothing new. Rebels will continue to rise, but we've seen this before. And therefore, we know where it will end. And so we can walk by faith. That's the first reminder. God's King continues to face opposition. The second reminder comes in verse 3. God's discipline continues to take effect. God's discipline continues to take effect. Now, verse 3 is difficult. Not in terms of interpretation. It's pretty straightforward what David does. It's difficult because of what it recounts. But the author apparently wants you to pay attention to it because he interrupts the story of Sheba's rebellion to tell you verse 3. He doesn't put it at the end of the chapter. He puts it at the beginning. Right? So this is more than an afterthought. But still, it's difficult. Notice again what happens. David returns to Jerusalem to officially reclaim his throne, but his first act upon arriving is to isolate the ten concubines he left to care for the royal palace. Now, you probably remember what Absalom did with those concubines back in chapter 16. It was too shocking to forget. Absalom slept with them on the roof of the palace, under a tent, but out in the public view before the eyes of Israel. That was Absalom's way of staking his claim to the throne. It was his wicked way of demonstrating his superior power over his father. But what that means is that David cannot have anything to do with these women. That would be shameful. These women are connected with Absalom, almost in the sense of being bound to him. And what's more, because they're the king's concubines, David also cannot allow them to be married to anyone else. He can't have anything to do with them. He can't give them to anyone else. That would be cause for trouble. So David does what he believes to be best. He provides for them, but he requires that they live in isolation for the rest of their lives. They were probably young, so it's a long time that they live in isolation until they die. Now, what accounts for this dismal scene? And it is really dismal. What accounts for this? 
What explains it? Well, you have to say David's sin, don't you? You have to say the sin of King David gives us verse 3. I mean, think about it. There is a direct line from David's sin with Bathsheba all the way down to the dismal scene of verse 3. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and in response, God declared He would raise up evil against David from within His own house. Do you remember that? Chapter 12. Specifically, God declared that an adversary would rise up and he would take David's wives just as David had taken another man's wife. That's how we end up in verse 3. David sinned. The Lord brought His discipline against David. And now David's household is left to deal with sin's devastation. We've said it before, friends, but it bears repeating here. David's life, especially these hard bits like verse 3, David's life is a sobering reminder that sin has horrible consequences. Sin has horrible consequences. Now, the ultimate consequence of sin for the believer has been atoned for at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So everything that I'm about to say, I want you to hear me say this. The ultimate consequence was dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where He took the wrath of God on behalf of His people. Keep that in your mind for what I'm about to say. The ultimate consequence has been dealt with once and for all. But sin still has horrible consequences in the present. We would do well to remember this. We rightly praise God for the repentance and restoration that has occurred in David's life. And we're overjoyed that a sinner like David will not face eternal destruction because of his sin. We're overjoyed because it reminds us of the good news for sinners like us. But at the same time, we must also bear in mind what we see here. That sin still has consequences in the present. Temporal, real-life consequences. And those consequences are often bitter and hard. Friends, I'll contend this is part of what it means to live every day in the fear of the Lord. It's to recognize that sin's promise is always deceptive. In that moment of temptation, sin is lying to you. Telling you that if you will just give in, you'll find pleasure and happiness and everything you wanted. Think about David on the rooftop in chapter 11. Sin was telling him, just go for it and your life will be better. And that's what sin is saying to you and me. Just give in and you'll be satisfied. And you'll be happy. But friends, that sinful promise is always deceptive. Always learn the lesson of David's fall. Learn the lesson. Behind every moment of sinful pleasure, there stands a world of painful consequences that we would never choose if we saw them in the moment. You hear what I'm saying? Behind every moment of sinful pleasure stands a world of horrendous consequences that if you saw them in the moment, you would never choose to go down that path. And what David's life is doing is helping you to see those consequences in the moment. That's what this is. You see the discipline of God in David's life being worked out in verse 3, and it should compel you to say, God, I don't ever want to taste that bitter fruit. Help me to remember that sin is always lying to me. Every moment 
in David's life that we've seen that is hard is God's message to us saying, look where sin goes. Look where it will take you. Don't give in. The heartache and the devastation are never worth it. There's a fleeting moment of pleasure and there is a world of heartache waiting to crash down. Listen, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that if you'll just remember that there are consequences, that that will be the silver bullet to all of your battles against sin. I'm not going to stand here and pretend that that, that that's what I'm saying. There are no silver bullets to resisting sin, by the way. If it feels like you're dying, then you're doing it right. There are no silver bullets. And there are some strategies that are better than this one. But at a minimum... Remembering the consequences that we see in David's life can be a means of grace to you and me. At a minimum, remembering the heartache that David experiences can be enough to help you and I resist sin in our own lives. So friends, let's listen to this second reminder. Let's listen to it. God's discipline continues to take effect. God disciplines those whom He loves. And Lord willing, this should spur us on to holiness in our lives as well. That's reminder number two. God's discipline continues to take effect. That brings us to reminder number three. And this is the last one, the longest one from 2 Samuel 20. God's people continue to need discernment. God's people continue to need discernment. At this, this point, we need to focus on two characters. Joab, which I'm tired of talking about Joab. I don't know about you guys. I've had enough of Joab. We need to focus on Joab and the wise woman from Abel, this, the city of Abel. Both of these characters are instrumental in defeating Sheba's rebellion. But has, as has often been the case in 2 Samuel, both characters are hard to figure out. Both characters challenge us to think carefully and to exercise discernment. That's what I want us to wrestle with at this point. It's true that both Joab and the woman from Abel are helpful in some, in some way for solving this problem, but are their methods commendable? That's the question. Are their methods commendable? That's why I say that this final reminder is about discernment, because both of these characters make us think. So let's focus on Joab for just a moment. You'll remember that David replaced Joab with Amasa as commander of the army. Joab and Amasa are cousins, by the way. David replaced Joab with Amasa. So in keeping with that decision, David sends Amasa out in verse 4. You can see it there in verse 4. David sends him out to gather the army. David is clearly concerned about Sheba's rebellion, so he tells Amasa to be back in three days. But three days pass with no word from Amasa. And again, David is worried. So this time he sends Abishai, Joab's brother, to hunt down Sheba. Verse 7 describes Abishai's band of men. But there's a fascinating note at the outset of the verse. Look again there, verse 7. And there went out after him, that is, after Abishai, Joab's men. You see, Joab may have been replaced, but these are still his men. Verse 7 is a small hint that Joab is not going to take his demotion in stride. And indeed, he doesn't. Notice verse 8. The army arrives in Gibeon, where they happen to find the lost Amasa. 
Why is Amasa in Gibeon? It's puzzling. Gibeon is part of Benjamin's territory. Sheba, you'll remember from verse 1, is also from Benjamin. So now Amasa shows up in Benjamin's territory when he's supposed to be in Judah's territory. What is he doing there? We don't know. But we do know what Joab is doing in Gibeon. He's come to take back his position. And in typical Joab fashion, he does it with cunning ruthlessness. Notice verse 9. Joab extends his right hand to embrace Amasa for a friendly kiss. Understand the right hand was the hand that you fought with. So if you extend your right hand with no weapon in it, it's a sign that you come in peace, right? I come in peace, my brother. But it's the left hand that holds Joab's true intention. Verse 8 told us that his dagger slipped out as he walked, but verse 9 tells us that that slip was perhaps more cunning than coincidence. Verse 9, with one brutal stroke, Joab stabs Amasa in the stomach. That should sound familiar to you. It's how Joab killed Abner, too, back in chapter 3. He pretended to want to speak to him, and he stabbed him in the stomach. This time, it's Amasa who falls. So, Add another name to Joab's list. They all start with the letter A. Abner, Absalom, Amasa. He kills them all. Joab is ruthless. And if that's not brutal enough, notice what happens in verses 10 to 13. Amasa is lying in the road in the midst of his death throes. The text says he's wallowing in his own blood, which you can imagine creates quite the scene. And that's the problem. This army needs to keep marching. There's no time to stop here and have pity on the pathetic Amasa as he dies. So one of Joab's men simply picks up Amasa's body, throws it in a field, covers it with a blanket, and says, let's get going. And that's what happens. I mean, it's it's brutal, and it has no feeling at all. Amasa is eliminated. And that means the path is clear for Joab to take back what he wants the most. Power. Joab wants power. He wants to be in charge. But here's where it gets tricky, friends. How is Joab planning to use his power? What's he going to do with it? He's going to serve David. He's going to take back his power, and then he's going to serve David's best interests. Do you see how complicated this is? Joab is not a rebel. At least not like Absalom or Sheba, Joab is the one hunting rebels. What's more, Joab is really good at his job. I mean, you may say he's a scoundrel. I think he's a scoundrel, but he's a good scoundrel. I mean, an effective scoundrel. He gets things done. He advances the royal agenda. He protects the crown. And yet, at the same time, Joab is a problem, isn't he? David demoted him from being commander, and Joab refused to obey David's decision? You see, it's not clear cut. On the one hand, Joab is ruthless and despicable, and on the other hand, he is really, really effective at helping David. What are you supposed to make of a person like that? Well, before we answer that question, let's consider the other person in this chapter that deserves our attention, the other character, the woman who lives in the city of Abel. We'll come back to Joab in a minute. Verse 14 tells us that Sheba escaped to Abel, a city in northern Israel. It doesn't appear that Sheba garnered much support along the way either. Only members of his clan are with him. 
and they had to go to the northernmost city or the northernmost extent of Israel in order to find refuge. It's all the way up above the Sea of Galilee, almost to Syria, the city of Abel. So already, Sheba's rebellion is crumbling. He's got like 12 dudes with him, and they're way, way far away. Like Wisconsin far away. Sorry, Liz. Like really far away. It's already crumbling. But Joab has no time for analysis or negotiation. Verse 15, Joab besieges the city straight away. It's an all-out assault. Siege ramps, battering rams. I mean, Joab means business. And that's when he meets this woman who lives in Abel. Verse 16 describes her as a wise woman. Now that description should get your attention. In 2 Samuel, wisdom is simply the ability to successfully accomplish your goal. In 2 Samuel, that's what wisdom is defined as. The ability to successfully accomplish your goal. The presence of wisdom doesn't necessarily mean a person will use it for good. He or she may just as easily use it for evil. For example, think about Jonadab back in chapter 13. Do you remember that guy? Jonadab? He was described as crafty. But it's the same word that's used to describe this woman as wise. So how did Jonadab use his wisdom? How did he use his skill? He used it for evil, remember? He concocted that plan for Amnon to violate his sister Tamar. It was Jonadab's plan. So you see the issue. The woman here in chapter 20 is wise, but the verdict is still out on whether or not she's any good. The issue is not the presence of wisdom, but the application of it. How will this woman use her skill? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wait very long to witness the effect of the woman's wisdom. Verses 17 to 22 tell you the story. And it's a compelling example of wisdom preventing greater devastation. You can see the details there in the text. Verse 19, the woman asks Joab why he seeks to destroy a city as valuable and noteworthy as Abel. What's more, she rebukes Joab for seeking to harm God's people. Notice that phrase, the heritage of the Lord in verse 19. Do you notice that? The heritage of the Lord. The Lord's heritage, according to the Old Testament, is His people. So she's helping Joab see what his ruthlessness is about to do. You're going to hurt God's people. You're going to hurt the Lord's heritage. Of course, that's not how Joab sees things. Verse 21, he claims that he's only seeking one man, Sheba. If they will give Sheba up, then Joab will call off his attack. The woman claims that she can deliver what Joab wants. And in verse 22, her boast proves true. Sheba's head is unceremoniously thrown over the wall. And the rebellion is over, just like that. It's all wrapped up very neatly. In verse 1, Sheba blew his trumpet in rebellion. And in verse 22, Joab blows his trumpet in victory. See, the two trumpet blasts tell you that the story's over. The rebellion is done. The wise woman of Abel has saved the people of her city, and she defeated Sheba the rebel in the process. So, is this woman's wisdom to be commended? Well, in this situation, it seems so. In fact, the overall point of these verses appears to be that the woman's wisdom counteracts Joab's ruthlessness. Joab is ruthless, but the woman's wisdom keeps him from inflicting greater harm on the people of God. 
She keeps a bad situation from getting any worse. Friends, what I want us to take away from these verses is how vital it is for God's people to have discernment as we try to do the Lord's work. There are countless numbers of people in this world who operate like Joab. They crave power, and they may even use their power for good things, but that does not make them good. You'll meet lots of people like Joab. There are also lots of people like the woman of Abel, people who are quote-unquote wise, people who know how to successfully accomplish a goal. But remember, success itself is not the main criteria by which something is determined to be good. Success is not the main criteria. In fact, I like how one Old Testament scholar has put it, wisdom that is not mixed with sanctification is lethal. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm urging us to see. I can't say it any better than that. Quote, wisdom that is not mixed with sanctification is lethal. All of these hard situations in 2 Samuel, and we've seen a lot of them, all of these situations are reminding us of two things. One, character matters more than results. And two, discernment remains as necessary for us as it was for King David. Character matters more than results. And two, discernment remains as necessary for us as it was for King David. So I'll just ask you here at the end, are you easily impressed by people or things simply because they get results? Are you easily impressed by people or things simply because they get results? Or are you cultivating a discerning heart and mind that carefully evaluates life in this world. We need discernment, friends. I think that's what Joab and this wise woman are saying to us. They're hard to pin down, which is a reminder that you and I need the Lord's help to be discerning, to see things the right way. The world around us is swimming in a results-based, pragmatic, do-whatever-you-got-to-do-to-get-ahead culture. And the church absolutely must swim against that culture. Absolutely. We cannot be known as people who will go along with whatever just because it gives us what we want in the end. That's a quick way to destroy our witness. We need discernment. Let's cultivate discernment. And the only way to do that is by taking in God's Word so that the Scriptures shape our minds, reform our hearts, and inform our decisions. So I'm saying here at the end that my primary application and call to you today is to do what God's people are supposed to be doing every day until the Lord comes back. Take in His Word. Be a people of the book. Know God's Word. Not so we can show off how much Bible we know, but so we can live with discernment in this often hard to figure out world. So, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing new under the sun. Another rebellion, another murder, another need for discernment. Much of what we've seen in 2 Samuel is familiar because simply we've seen it before. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is part of humbling ourselves under God's Word. We listen, and then we listen again. For surely God knows best what His people need to hear. Amen? Let's pray.